There's areas of our Torah that we don't touch. There's areas of our Torah we don't touch because we're afraid to touch. There's stuff we're supposed to unpack. There, there, there's stuff we always knew. For thousands of years, when we come back to our country, we're going to unpack certain things. And we don't unpack them because we're afraid of what we'll find. We're afraid that we're either going to end up with a giant Haredi community or a Jewish Iran. And because we're afraid of either having a giant Haredi community or a Jewish Iran, we reduce the Torah in the state of Israel to what it was in Galut. To its corner, it handles divorces, it handles marriages, it handles uh, Giyur. It, it, that's basically the role of the Torah in our society. And it gives uh, little certificates to restaurants that they're kosher. But uh, we know that we have a civilization that's much bigger than that, and we've come back home after 2,000 years to unpack that and really try to create a, a society and a, civiliza a civilization that expresses the divine ideal in every sphere of human behavior and, and really, uh, really does uh, manifest, um, manifest our values, express our authentic values in a way that's appropriate for a 21st century nation-state. And we can't begin to do that until we unpack. We realize there's a topic we should be covering. That's the, it's like the extreme other side topic. It's like the topic, if we can unpack this, then we can unpack everything in between. And so we decided tonight the shiur is going to be whether or not, first of all, we're going to, the whole idea of the Eshet Yifator, everyone knows what the Eshet Yifator is? Yes. Okay, uh, it's like when a, when a Hebrew soldier sees a woman on the other side, and he could, you know, there's, we're going to get into what he can, cannot do, uh, specifically what Kohanim are allowed to do or not allowed to do, because a Kohen has a unique situation where a woman who goes through a naturalization process, a Giyur process, and becomes part of Am Yisrael, can't marry a Kohen. Right? So what is a, and we know that the average Hebrew soldier, when he takes a woman in battle, it's supposed to result, ideally, with him marrying her. So the question is, what does the Kohen do in battle? So we're going to try to cover all of these topics tonight. I'd really like Rav Gabriel to lead. So now that the introduction is out there, we can have the actual shiur. There's a, um, a report that was actually put out in Tel Aviv University, it was a doctorate, I think, uh, that won a bunch of awards, like not too long ago, a couple of years back. And the research paper wanted to prove why the idea of soldiers are actually racist, because they don't rape women in battle. Palestinian women. Palestinian women in battle, or Arab women in battle, like in Egypt and uh, Syria and so forth, like that. And that's proof that we're um, racist. And everyone hears that, like, that's ridiculous. How can you say such a thing? But the actual, the reality is, is that there's something true in that. And what's true in that is, if we think about it, one of the, what, the, this act, I mean, it's uh, as horrible as it is, one of the ways, historically, every culture conquers another nation that we find the phenomena of uh, uh, the phenomenon of rape in everywhere, like World War II, all over the place, the United States, and Vietnam, things like that. What happens? There's something that's very natural in the idea that the men now took the women of the subjugated nation, right? Now the next generation, what are they? They're not American. They're not Vietnamese, right? They're actually they have blood ties to the conquering nation. And that's what you find everywhere around the world that, in fact, I'm not justifying it, but I'm pointing out a fact that this is something that sociologically is true. That's how Latinos were created. That's how every, that's how every conquering people in the history of the world conquers another nation, is that there is an act of, uh, uh, if you want to call it, or taking the women, and then the next generation is like half American, half, half Vietnamese. Okay? And you notice, like, how many of the how many people came out of like the Vietnam War, and they have like children, and now and and now the next generation, they actually have like dual lo loyalty. Are they? Well, have the Americans stayed there? Are they? What's that? Have the Americans? Well, there stayed. were a lot of that came out, right? I mean, but that's something that happened in battle, and something that that's very natural that happens in in battle uh, a lot of times. Um, so uh, that's something that that happens 
Do you believe it happened with us in the Canaanim, the Canaanites? No, we know, for example, that that for Midianites. sure happened with the Midianites. Mm -hmm. Like, we took 30,000 Midianite women. Like, someone I had actually on Shabbat, someone was asking me about the Midianites. He's like, oh, where are the Midianites today? I said, well, the truth is, we're the Midianites. Why are we the Midianites? Because our great, 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 great grandfathers um, took 30,000 Midianite women and brought them into the nation of Israel. And in fact, the nation of Israel has imbibed many other nations throughout its history. Like also the Edomites at a different time in history, and other other nations, Canaanites as well. Like uh, they've been brought in in different ways, and that, and one of the one of the primary difficulties I think of this generation, and this is why I think it's important maybe to, to discuss this issue, is because we have today a kind of um, exile mentality of Judaism or of Jewish peoplehood. For two thousand years, when we lived as a minority among other nations, there's like two categories. Either you're a Jew and you're with us, you can convert and become one of us, or you're like a Gentile and then we're suspicious of you and you're on the outside and you can't be one of us. Like there you, can, you can convert and, be, and come, become part of the community, but if you're not part of the community, you're the other. Now that, I, I want to claim, and I think it's very clear and very true, that at times when the Jewish people had power, those were not the only two categories. There are actually several categories of people People on their way in. There were ways of absorbing other people into the into the community. That some of them were absorbed fully as like what's called a ger, which is wrongfully translated as convert. A convert being someone who uh, who changes their religious beliefs in modern day. That's a total misnomer, obviously, because the word ger in Hebrew means a stranger who is chosen to dwell among among us. And there's different levels of ger. There's a ger tzedek. There's gerim gurim, uh, ger, gerim who weren't totally accepted into the people. There are, there's a ger, ger Toshav, who remains a Gentile and is still a part, can be, live among the people of Israel, but is not obligated to all of the, the same commandments as the people of Israel. You frame it as like two like, clashing civilizations, there's a war and then like, like the, it's like a strategic thing to rape the women, which I get. Right. But also that happens in a different context, which is colonization. That also happens Absolutely. when there's a colonizer. Absolutely. And that's not exactly the same strategy and it also doesn't result necessarily in the same dynamic because by and large, when that happens, the people, the next generation aren't like welcomed into the society as like, oh, you're half us and half them. So now you're just like creating this spectrum as opposed to like opposition. It's not like that. It usually ends up being that there's this like subjugated group that are either, you know, oppressed or rejected from both communities. Like it's not it's half breeds. Exactly. Yeah, right. Like like African slaves in America when they were African, like actually from Africa and they were slaves and then white men were raping the black women and then they were like denying the children and also keeping them as slaves. Like things like that. Right. So how is that like different? No, no, I look I think that there's all different types of social constructs about how people dealt with this phenomenon, but I just wanted to point out that it's actually a very natural thing if we're talking about if war is a natural part of human nature, and it seems to be, so we've been at war most of the time, most of history is, is full of wars between groups, right? That one of the aspects of, you can call it domination, you can call it subjugation, you can call it colonization, and there's all very many, a whole bunch of different um, um, relations to that, is the act of like the that the dominating society takes the females of the of the dominated society right mm -hmm. and then create something else like the next generation is something new is a is a is a crossbreed now it could be like you said that the crossbreed can depending on the mentality of the society the conquering society they can either say okay that crossbreed belongs to the slaves mm -hmm. let's say or they could say they're totally one of us or they could do any kind of thing in the middle but right? sp speaking to what Leia said yeah in our society, in our civilization, the laws are structured such that they're fully ah. part of the dominating society. Ah, so that's exactly what I want to point out. No, that's exactly what I want to point out. Now, when we look at Jewish society and the relation of Jewish society, traditionally, when we have power to this phenomenon, what, now let's see what we can learn from it. Let's see what we can learn from it. What happens, what is actually happening when something that seems so violent and vile and evil, right? What is actually happening here? Okay, that's what I want us to, to, to think about for a second. And to say that, let's first of all look at the, the, the concept of what's called like Evid Knani. Okay, Evid Knani is the idea of a non-Jewish slave. And anytime anyone hears in English the word slave, that, that, that sounds, you know, horrible, like how could you talk about slavery or whatever. But what actually happens with an Evid Knani? Now watch this. 
you buy every Kanani from idol worshippers. Okay? The first thing you have to do, if you want him to become your slave, what do you do? You circumcise him. And stick him in a mikveh. And then what is he? The Ebi Kanani... Like a half-Jew. He's, he's not only a half-Jew, he's obligated to all of the mitzvot that a woman is obligated to yeah. perform. He's woman. only exempt, right, of, a, of a, Jew, a Jewish woman. He's only exempt from mitzvot that are, have time, time, uh, are time sensitive. Because he has to be fulfilling his duties also. Okay? In other words, what have you done? You've brought him from a position where he's on the outside. And now all of a sudden, you have a, he's, he is your property. Okay? By the way, your property. Now what happens if something, if he gets hurt? What did you just lose? Money. What happens if you don't take care of him? You lost money. Whereas if he wasn't your property, what would you do? Oh, okay, I'll just hire someone else tomorrow. Oh, what happened? You hurt yourself? You broke your leg? You got your leg chopped off by that? No problem. I'll just hire someone else for the same price. The minute he's your property, you have an obligation and responsibility to that person. But yeah. is, isn't he on the same level in terms of mitzvot? He's on the same level as a Hebrew slave. He, no. A Hebrew slave is totally is a really different idea. Let's but stay away from it at the moment. In terms of mitzvot obligations. No, he's obligated no, he is obligated like a Jewish woman. Like a Jewish free woman. Was like, Hebrew slave? A Hebrew slave is, a total, is, is, is obligated to all the mitzvot. Even mitzvot are A Hebrew slave is, mitzvot, is obligated to perform all the mitzvot. Okay. I'm not justifying the institution. I'm just, I want to present the Hebrew perspective of what this institution is so you can understand it better. What's happening here in the first place is that the person who is the owner has responsibility for this person. What responsibility does he have for this person? He has to end up teaching him the mitzvot. Because this person has to now be performing all of the mitzvot that a, that a Jewish woman would have to perform in his house. Mm -hmm. In other words, he's basically like your pupil. And you're invested in him economically as well, because if something happens to him, then you've lost a lot of money. It's a lot of money to buy a person. It's not, uh, not a simple thing, right? I agree with you that in certain cases, that it would, and there, there are stipulations for that as well, like if you, if you hurt him in some way, and, and when he's set free, and so forth and so forth. Those are, those are other questions. Now, it says in the Torah that, that you're forbidden to ever set your slave free. Okay? Ebed Kanani. And Ebed Kanani. You're never allowed to set him free because the minute that you set him free, he becomes a full member of society. A full Jew. 100% a Jew. But, now listen to this. There are certain conditions under which you can set him free. Yovel. What's that? No, Yovel is not, not related to him. You set him free if, for example, we have nine men and we want to do a minion. And we're missing the 10th guy. And the 10th guy happens to be an Evid Kanani. You can say, all right, you know what? We have a rabbinic mitzvah to perform. Why don't you come in and complete the minyan, minyan? And at that moment, he's set free. In other words, what is this whole institution about? The whole institution, and this is what I want to get to. The institution of, if we look at it clearly, of Evid Kanani. By the way, also, you're not allowed to leave the land of Israel with if you leave the land of Israel with them, the minute you leave the land of Israel, he's set free. What is the whole institution? The institution is, it's, what, it's like, what I, I like to think of it as like Misad Krita. What's Misad Krita? What's that? The absorption agency. We're like taking someone from the outside and we're bringing them in onto the inside. And this is one of the paths of bringing them into our society. Okay? If a slave runs away from someone else, we have an obligation to protect them. And these are like issues that like we should be talking about. Like, for example, when we're talking about the uh, team, the, 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 the asylum seekers from Africa and so forth and so forth. There's laws about, in Jewish law about what we're supposed to do. Someone's running away from his, his slave masters in another place and he wants to come to us. Mm -hmm. Or in, in war, when you're fighting a war and you've surrounded the city, you have to leave an opening for people to run out of the city and to join you. You have to leave a way, a path open for people to join you. Okay? So what I'm saying is, that this entire institution... Unless they started the war. So they... So they uh, it depends. It depends. What? So you're saying, yeah, for a while, I'm going to be ready for this So then... <laughs> well, that's because you're racist. <laughs> no, right. That's how we started out. Actually. No, there was a research paper that oh, came out. I saw that. Yeah. That came out of the race. But what I'm saying is that it's kind of true. It's kind of... <laughs> it, it's kind of true. Yeah. Because what happens with Eshijah Fatua? It's the same exact... It's the same thing. Okay? You have the ability 
in battle to take one woman mm -hmm. in certain conditions, and the conditions are very, very strict, by the way, like about when you're allowed to do it, when you're not allowed to do it, if she's only if she's a prisoner of, of war, and, and the first time you see her, and so forth, and so forth, you take her in. But then what happens is you're not allowed to, after the first act, which is a compromise with the Yetzirah, that's how the Gemara explains it, like just how like in war, you're allowed to also drink even if there's like wine that was used for idol worship. And you can't go into the house where there's, there's bacon sitting there in, on the stove, right? And you never had bacon before. You can go in and you can eat the bacon in the middle of the war. Because you're hungry and you're, you're in the heat of battle and everything like that. So there, there's, the Torah says, okay, you can do it. And if you can't stand up to your Yetzirah, so then you can do it. You can take, you can take that. And, uh, uh, and you take her, but then you have to, you have to marry her. She has to convert. She has to become a, a, a Jew in the full sense. Mm -hmm. And so this is one of the ways of bringing people into our society. Uh, and if she doesn't want to, what does she have to do? She has to accept the seven mitzvot of Bnei uh, Noach, like the seven Noahid laws, and then she's set free. But isn't she, obli isn't she obligated to the aunt or non-Jews obligated to the seven Noahide laws? Right, if after 12 months she doesn't want to accept the seven Noahide laws, you that's, the, that's what the mom says. Okay? But it's in the, under the case that she wasn't already, you know, she didn't already follow the seven Noahide laws. So now what about the story of David Melech? The idea that David Melech created... Right all these Gentile soldiers in the armies of Israel. Right. So these are clearly women who did not become Hebrews. These are women right. who... Well, I, I think the, 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 more, the more important thing there is that is the, the Gemara actually brings a, um, an argument. It says in the Gemara that all of the soldiers of King David were, were miyuchasim. They were like Jews with like uh, good pedigree. And then, the, and then the Gemara says, wait about, wait about uh, Uriah Chiti. Right? He's very, he's like, no, no, he was a Jew, maybe he was born in, in that in land of Chet. Or maybe, what about this guy from Gat? No, he was, he was born in a place called Gat. And then they get to the last group where, where it shows that it's totally, it's, it's clear from my, my perspective that, they, that the conclusion of the Gemara, the conclusion of the Gemara very simply is that there were non-Jews fighting in David's army, is that there were 400 non-Jewish non -Jewish men who were who were riding in chariots of gold, and he, they, they're called the Balei Gufim of, of David Amalek. And they had what's called a blurit. In other words, they had a haircut that is allowed only to Gentiles. So in other words, King David had his, his like, crack groups, his, his, his uh, what do you call those, like, like the, the guys who were, uh, like his super forces. Elite troops. What, elite troops. He had elite troops that were made specifically of non-Jews in his army. And the Gemara says, okay, so you won. Like, okay, I guess he did have non-Jews in his army as well. But they, but they didn't actually like, go out into battle or something like that, but they just, they just made the, a, a, an impression on the enemy and so forth. Who were these, who were these people? These were 400 people that were um, the descendants of of the women that were taking battle. There's a whole like, argument about it. But, but what's important to me and then in this perspective is the idea, and this is something that we've lost, like this is where I started out, is when we were in exile, when we're a minority among a Gentile majority, when we have no power, when we're just a little community, and the power, the political power is in the hand of the, of the Gentile, there's only two categories. You're either a Jew and you're with us, or you're a Gentile and you're against us. And then you have to convert to become one of us, to become on our side, to come on our side. But the reality is, if you look back to the times when the Jewish people had power, when we had power, there were many, many ways to join the Jewish people without actually us taking on the 613 commandments. And not only that, the crack troops of King David were people like this. And he could have converted them, but he didn't. Now, there were some that he did convert, like, for example, Tamar. Tamar, the daughter of, uh, of David, she was the daughter of Shijafatoa. And that's how... Uh, uh, Meaning, a, a woman that David raped in battle. A, a woman that that David raped in battle, uh, not in battle. It takes, he had to take her home, but that she was captured in battle and he took her home, uh, and uh, and 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 that's why it was permitted. Like if you look in the Sefer Shmuel, it was permitted for Amnon to marry Tamar because they weren't really brother and sister. They weren't really brother and sister. 
She was the daughter of the Eshtefatoa, Tama, from, from before, went from the first act. And the second, already afterwards, David did marry this woman, and they had another child. Avshalom. And that was Avshalom. Sorry, Avshalom. Why is it actually called Eshtefatoa? Like, why Yafatoa? Because the Gemara, the Mechilta says that it's, this is um, like a compromise for the Yitzhah Okay? And and it says that Yifatoa means that, that the person like in battle was attracted to her and wanted to take her wanted to take her. Okay, so it's important that she was in some way that he desired her in some way. But today I was reading a more like spiritual interpretation of the thing and it was basically saying how you know how you said that the men were really like the like the holiest of the nation, the men in the army, okay. in like King David's army. You just said so. He was basically so. The whole point of like in gathering like people to join the Jewish nation is that why why when the woman had to when he would take the woman away he had to shave off all her hair and cut her nails. Um, it's because it wasn't only just about like the Yisrael, but rather they they were on such a high spiritual level that they saw like the Nitzot in those women. And because they were on that level, they were able to distinguish and identify that, and then take them, and then just to ensure, make them less attractive, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, rarely they were they were converting women who were actually like Jewish, not not Jewish, but had like a spark, like a Jewish spark in them, and bringing them back to the Jewish people. That they rarely brought them in. They that rarely married the Eshetivator. No, that they would. Mm -hmm. But because they were men of high spiritual value... Uh, okay. so, so now let's talk about what the Torah actually is. The Torah, there's what's called the simple level of the Torah. Okay, that's what we were kind of explaining. Like how, you know, the Kittit say that when you go out to war against your enemies. Like, this is what you do. And these are the laws, and these are important. That's like the pshat, the simple level. But every single aspect of the Torah actually is also talking about a very deep spiritual level also. So what's the deep spiritual level of the Eshetifat Torah? The idea is that when you're going out, and this is very important for everything that we're doing, by the way, when we're going out and fighting like the propaganda war against uh, Israel's enemies, like BDS and all these, all these ideas, what we're doing is we're going out to war, right? We're going out to battle. And in there, there's also sparks of truth that have to be freed. What is that? We captured them. We won the battle. And now we see, wait a second, there's something special there. But we want to take it. We want to make it part of who we are, right? Because there's something special there. They have, there's some kind of truth that they had that I didn't have. And that's why Hashem created them. That's why Hashem made there to be these different camps that would be fighting against each other because, I'm, because they have a truth that I don't have and I have a truth that they don't have. So my duty is to take in their truth as well, to eat their truth. That's why it says, That's why the Jewish people, it, you know, like every level of life eats the level below it, right? The plants eat the, the mem, the, the, the earth, and the animals eat the plants, and the people eat the, the animals, and Am Yisrael eats people. That's what it says in the Torah, that the people of Israel, we eat nations. Why do we eat nations? Because we're supposed to take out what happens when you eat. You take in all the good things, and all the bad things come out as uh, waste. Waste. Okay? So that's what Eshet Yafat Torah is. What is Eshet Yafat Torah? Eshet Yafat Torah is the idea that when we go out to battle, that there's sparks of truth that are trapped among our enemies. And we can notice it, but know that you can also be mistaken. And therefore, what you do is when you take the Eshet in, the first thing you have to do is say, wait, wait a second, wait a second. I saw something special there, but maybe it was, maybe I was just, it was just the glamour of her, you know, beautiful fingernails and, and the hair and whatever she had, right? So you shave out, it's, that's why her head has to be shaven. And she grows out her fingernails and she changes her clothing and she has to sit there and cry for the loss of her parents. There's a makhluk in the Gemara. Where's the loss of her parents? One of the Tanaim says it's the loss of her parents is the literal loss of her parents. The fact that she's no longer with her people anymore. That she's not hurt. That truth that I brought into me is no longer a part of that other truth, of that other camp. But there's also another meaning to it. And so Rabbi Akiva says that what is she mourning? She's mourning the loss of of her Avodah Zarah, of the idolatry, of the, of the religion that she had when she was over there. Who brings that down? That, that's Rabbi Akiva says. 
And, and the idea is that, yes, okay, so we're taking in truths. But you have to be very careful when you're taking in truths. And this is something that the Jewish people, and that is the heart of being colonized, is when you're not careful anymore in taking the truth. Sometimes you can become the Eshidiyafat Torah that's taken captive by the other people, right? And sometimes you can think that you're free and that you're taking in a, 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 a truth into you, but you've just been, you, you, you were blinded by the glamour, the external glamour of what you thought was right, real over there, right? They're offering you a scholarship and they're giving you money and they're, and they're, um, I mean, but it's true. Like you see the truth there, but they're also they also are giving you a lot of money, and they, and you get a lot of fame, and you get a lot of respect, and you get all these beautiful things. So now, what do you have to do? You have to take this to your home, and shave it down, change the clothing, shave off the hair, grow out the fingernails, and let that truth sit there and mourn for for thirty days, and then you can decide whether it's going to be a part of you or not, whether you can take it. And that's what we have to do every time we go forward. And we have to do it very slowly, because if we don't, then we're losing ourselves. If we don't, then we're being assimilated. If we don't, then we're taking in too many truths that we can't handle. And we might be blinded by all these other things, and, uh, and, and, and that's, that's part of the colonization of the Jewish people. Didn't you say earlier that, like, right up next to this part about you can rape the woman, you can also, like, eat the bacon and drink the... Jesus wine, like, so how is that not part of the same category of just like giving into your... There's a principle in the Torah that there's nothing that's totally, totally forbidden. Okay? There are things that seem forbidden, and things that are permitted, but every, everything has its place, and every person has its hour. There's a time where everything is permissible. There is an idea that everything can be under the certain circumstances, under certain circumstances can be per permitted. And those are things that are permitted. Those things are per permitted in battle. No, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm just saying that, like, I find it okay. It's a nice thought to say, like, oh, I'm just freeing her from her thing, and she's got a spark of truth inside. That's nice. But it's also right up next to the part where it's saying, like, okay, in this certain circumstance, we'll give you like the permission to do all these other bad things. So it right. kind of seems as if it's also saying yeah, this yeah, is a bad no, thing. No, no, we're letting you do it. It is. Both. It, 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 is. Is. it is. It is. It's absolutely. It is absolutely referred to it's as a, a compromise thing. with the Yetzirah. But, by the way, the Yetzirah is not bad. Okay? Like, the evil inclination is The good. raw thing threw me off. What's that? The raw thing threw yeah, me it's, off. Yeah, it's deceptive. Like, it's called Yetzirah, but it's just, like, got a bad name. It's Yetzirah is actually the best thing that there is. Yetzirah is the only thing that was actually created in the world. Because, what is Yetzirah? Yetzirah, there's the... It says in the Gemara also that one day, like, they came and they slaughtered the Yetzirah, and then there were no more children, and there were no more... Uh, uh, people didn't advance anymore. In other words, Yetzirah is what moves us forward. The question about Yetzirah is, how are we going to use it? Are we using it for good or are we using it for bad? Okay. So is okay. there a good part of the bacon and a good part of the other? Like, are there good? Yeah. We're what? freeing the wine also? Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. Not only that, I'll tell you something. There's a, there's a law that's actually very interesting. <coughs> Am I allowed to eat bacon? No. Am I allowed to eat bacon? <laughs> Thank you. One, 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 one person. Oh, no. I'm not allowed to eat bacon. Depends. Well, let, in battle, no. I can. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but what happens if my a little squirt of, ba of my bacon falls into a, my porridge? Okay? Am I allowed to eat that porridge? Well, the 60 rule. Ah, the 60, the one against 60. If there's 60 times more porridge than the, than the squirt of bacon, I'm allowed to eat that porridge. Now, the question is, I know that bacon squirted into that porridge. And I know there's 60 times more than the bacon. So it's permissible, but now should I eat it or should I not eat it? Don't what do you think the rabbis say? What, do you, what would you say? I wouldn't eat it. You wouldn't eat it. What's that? It's better not to. So, how hungry are you? <laughs> how hungry are you and how much porridge do you have? Uh, it's it's, it's tough. I mean, obviously, there's nothing else that you eat straight bacon. I was going to say, wouldn't it, matter, like, would it matter if you had less porridge? Like if you were poor, That's that was all the porridge you had. Those are the kinds of things you would have to take into account. Well, if you're if you're if you had no food and 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 for for sure, for sure like let's say it's per, it's permissible, but the question is, let's say you're a rich man and you have yeah. other porridge, and you could you could just throw that porridge out and, and it doesn't matter. Should you throw it out or should you eat it? You should eat it. Why? Because you're able food. to uplift the big. Ah, exactly. It's Ooh. it's Hashem <coughs> Yafatoa. That is Hashem Yafatoa. It's the exact same idea. You are Hashem made it so that that forbidden piece of food would fall into your porridge, 
And now, it's been rendered permissible. And okay, now you're so why shouldn't we put little pieces of bacon in all of our? Because you're not allowed to do it. You're not allowed to do it intentionally. Why? <laughs> it's the, it, it only matters if it's unintentional. Practical question now. But the bacon doesn't suffer like the woman that you're. Yeah, exactly. A kohen in battle. Yeah. This is really important. Practically speaking, <laughs> a kohen in battle. A kohen is he permitted to take a woman in battle or not? It's a dispute. The problem is that a Kohen, and this is one of the, maybe naturally we can, we can look at it this way, a Kohen, the, the question is, this law is a totally new law, like no one's ever heard of it before. It's like the Torah made this whole new law, that you're allowed to now sleep with a Gentile woman under these circumstances, okay? Which is weird. Now the question is, is it because it's a totally new law, does it apply to all Jews, including Kohanim? Or, since the Kohanim actually have a different religion than the people of Israel, like they have different mitzvot than I do, like the Kohen, he has different mitzvot than I do, is this law not applicable to the Kohen? That's the question that's asked in the Gemara. And the, the, the answer is, uh, first of all, for those who say that it's a way of compromising with the Yetzirah, like that the person couldn't withhold, just like he was starving in battle and he had to eat the bacon or he had to drink the Jesus wine or whatever it was. So if it's a compromise with the Yetzirah, then the coin should be able to do it as well. Because he also has Yetzirah. But... But can you take her back and marry her after? The problem is, is that you have an obligation once you've taken this woman Any Hebrew as a prisoner, right? As you've taken this woman as a prisoner, you have to marry her. You have to marry her. And she has to become your wife. And the Kohen cannot. And the Kohen can't marry her because she's a convert. What's that? Yeah. yeah. So that, that's the that's the dispute. And the Chachamim, the sages, debate uh, about it. The, the Halakha in the end is that he can take her once, but he cannot marry her. But he, but I I think when I read the Rambam, it looks to me like that they, is they the have Rambam. to go through the pro- No, but they have to go through the whole process of also of conversion. There's two versions of the Machloket. Yeah. Okay, there's one where Rav says he can perform the initial act and take her back and marry, and Shmuel says he can Correct. perform the initial act and not take her back. Right. And the other version of the same debate is that Rav says he can... He can the first no, he can. Rav says he can right. rape her in battle but not take her back, and Shmuel says he can't even rape her in battle. Correct. Right. And the Rambam in the end rules like... That he can he rape her in battle, battle, but not take her back. Correct. That he can, he takes her, no, he takes her back, but he can't marry her. Hmm. He takes her, take back, her back, her. What's that? Then why take her to back? To make her part of Israel. Look, the, the truth is, it's not, it's not clear. He can't, he can't, she can't become his wife, but she goes through the process of conversion. But who would want okay. to marry her after she's been raped? Also, I think that that's one of the ideas. No, in that, like in that. No, but it's like one of the, it's one of the ideas that if you... I think the Torah actually very much limits the ability for us to do this. We can talk about it as an idea, and we can say, ah, yes, I Torah, great, I'm going to go out to battle. But the reality is, is that there are very, very strict stipulations. Number one, yeah, if you're going to do that, but you know you're going to be stuck with that woman forever, okay? Like, that's not a good, not forever, you can divorce her afterwards, but, but you have to marry her afterwards. And do you really want to do that? So that's going to be, that's going to turn off like half the guys. Right, that's the way on the mind of the Yisrael lady, but... If there's uh, nothing to weigh on the mind of a killer, what's to stop him from just going crazy at one? Well, no, no, no. You can only take one woman. Only what? Every battle. One woman per battle. One woman per battle. And, as long as they have a limit. Right. And it has to be... <laughs> well, that was one of the problems why they said, like, how did David Amelech have 400 of these kids? Right. Because it's... And it's someone wanted to, to say that they had, they had, like, maybe he just had a lot of twins and triplets or something. Uh, because he didn't have 400 battles. Yeah. We don't know that he had 400 battles. So, you know, so the answer is actually that these 400 soldiers of his were not only his children, it was like his soldiers' children as well. David David. What? I'm sorry? Clarify. David 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 David. Correct. Yeah. Uh, also, there's a stipulation that you can only take one, obviously, I said. Uh, and it has to be like a, a, a situation where you like just cannot not succumb to the Yetzirah. Okay? Uh, and who's going to be judged of that? But like I said, like that's a common thing in battle, especially in, in, in all battles. It's a very, it's a that's what happens. That's what happens. 
And it also has to be in a state where um, the woman, it's the first time you saw her. Like, you can't be like, I saw this woman yesterday. Okay, now we're going to go to war. And when she's captured, I want that one. It, then you're not allowed to take her. Only if it's the first time you saw her is when she's been captured in battle. And it has to be at that moment. And then you have to take her back. You can't, obviously, uh, have intercourse with her in front, in, like, in... in in public or in front of it, you have to take her to your home. And the truth is that according to Rashi, you're not even allowed to have an intercourse with her until she goes through the whole process. The process that we talked about at first. That's, that's the version that Rashi goes in. Okay, and that's how he sees it. So you have to wait until the battle's done at the very least. Yeah, yeah, you can't do it. It's not in the heat of battle. Like, you choose her in the heat of battle when there's like prisoners war. Can you change war. your mind at any point? What do you mean? Like before, before the rape yeah. happens, can you change your mind at any point and be like, actually, I... Are we sure that there can't be a rape during the battle? Yeah. No, it's forbidden. It's forbidden to be in the, bat in the time of the battle. It has to be take her to your home, into an intimate location, and then can't you can be like your army tent. I don't know. We'd have to... Look, we haven't had these laws in so long. I mean, it'll be... <laughs> until we start to... <laughs> yeah, you know them. I mean, there's obviously no mikvah required initial time. Oh, good point. No, she's not. Not only that. Not only that. She could uh, say something not 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 so nice that will upset people. But she could. Be, it could be that she's a married woman. She could be a married woman. So, well, not according to our laws. Not according to our laws, but according to the to the idol right, yeah, worshippers. You're taking her bed. Probably that? because you killed her husband. So she's without she family. Right. Right. That's, that's oh, why right. you're bringing her back. Well, yeah, that's one of the reasons why you're bringing her back. Widow's permissible. What's that? The widow's permissible. Well, it could be a her husband. Maybe he just ran away. But, and you're not obligated to take her kids with her, or just kids? No, but you can take slaves in battle. Oh, sure. That's what people do. No, take the female kids as slaves, not the male kids. Depends on what kind of battle it is. Again, I think we have to understand like the laws of battle also, the laws of battle. And I think it really would help us like, if we were to internalize this today. The law of battle is very clear. You, have, you give people three choices. Like if you have, you're laying siege to a city, you give people three choices. You can either run away. Right? You can come and join us. No problem. Come and join us. You have to have that option open. Or you can come out and fight us. Okay? That makes a lot of sense. I would claim that one of the problems in the morality of the wars that the current state of Israel has fought, like against the Palestinians and against the Arabs and so forth, is that we haven't left, we haven't actually actualized the option of coming and joining us. Like there, that option has not been out there as a, as a real option. And that's one of the things that we have to be able to, to learn and to think about. When you say that the 1948 that that was an option, like the, the Arabs could have stayed where they, where they were, and Israel wouldn't have necessarily gone against them and killed them, so they did have that option to stay or to leave, and then that's what's been in contest since, since then, is the ones that left them want right. to be able to come back. So we did exercise that option at one point. Well, I don't think, I, I, the question is, is coming and joining us, does coming and joining us meaning to come and live in a liberal Western democracy that promises full equality, but in fact is called a Jewish democratic state, in which case you always, um, what, what you're being promised and what you're actually getting are two different things? Mm -hmm. Or does coming and joining us mean something else? So I would claim, I mean, that argument could be made, but I'm not sure that that's the meaning of come and join us. Like, I don't think that that's the meaning of, we for example... Co just to coexist. It means actually join us there. as a people. Like, what's that? I'm sorry? Once again? Uh, come and join us doesn't mean merely just coexist amongst us. It means actually join our peoplehood, like become... Well, not, become not, Jewish. not become Jewish, but to live among us in a way that's what's called Geltoshav. The idea of Geltoshav is the idea of a non-Jew who comes and lives in Hebrew society, retains his own identity and his own, his own uh, uh, unique way of life, mm -hmm. but has joined in, accepts the seven Noahide laws, and, and is also loyal to the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Like the Edomites. Like the Jerusalem? Like yeah, the Jerusalem. Like the Jerusalem are like that, I think, a little bit. Yeah, the Jerusalem, I think, are the, I have to say, I think the Jerusalem are probably the classic example. Um, at least what we have today of what a Ger Toshav would be. Right. Because they've made it very clear as a community that they accept our sovereignty, which is one of the uh, necessary requirements to be a Ger Toshav. You have to accept um, Israel's sovereignty in Eretz Israel. And on some level, they're, they're Noachides, because they still 
on some level, believe in the God of Abraham. Right. So it seems like, as far as I'm concerned, uh, maybe anybody could challenge me. I think they're the only obvious example of a Gertoshav in our society. Unfortunately, uh, maybe you and I will disagree with this. I, I don't see, uh, for sure as of now, I don't see like the the um, Islamic groups in like Hamas or like maybe no, it's because maybe it's because we have fell short in terms of what we have to offer like those three uh, did we have, did we ever offer that did, has that no, option we have that has yeah. that option ever been on the table no not clearly at least not not explicitly has not explicitly but but can you can you answer why the Jerusalem uh, maybe you can I mean I know it has to do with their culture because like they they generally have this belief. That they're loyal to loyal to any uh, sovereign power that they live under, but do you think that there's anything else that's deeper as to why it's just the Druzim that are Gerim Toshavim now and not yet the Muslim people? No, I think I, th I think actually one of the things that we have to talk about is the idea. First of all, I think we have to understand that Druze are a minority, a very persecuted minority. That's why they live in the high mountains. Why do they live in the high mountains? Because that was hard for people to get to. And so every time, every community they built was high up in the mountains in southern Syria or, or Lebanon, southern Lebanon and uh, northern Israel. They were a persecuted minority, and all of a sudden when we came around, like the Jewish people came here on the scene, they already had, a, they had um, uh, and we were powerful, they had a natural ally to join with. The Arabs, I think, first of all, are a very powerful nation. They're a very large nation, and they have a lot of people behind them, Okay. And so they have a lot of honor also, kavod, like we're self-respect. And the Jewish people coming here and taking part of what they consider to be part of their land is a problematic thing for them. And it's not, gonna be, it's not so quick that they're going to succumb. For the Jews, it's easy. For the Arabs, it's a long, hard, difficult process. And that's the process that we're in, a process of clarification. I think part of the process is also of the Middle East separating, and I think it is already starting to separate back into its kind of like tribal outfits. There is no really unified Arab nation, and in fact, a lot of the peoples who call themselves Arabs, actually, we all of a sudden are finding, you know, discovering that there's Kurds, and there's Armenians, and there's, and there's Arameans, and there's all these different, actually, tribal identities that, are, that were, in, in essence, also, like we talked about before, colonized by Arab expansion, okay? And the, and that also will be part of the process, I think, of, of us building, and what, what, what I believe we have to do here is to build a, a breed of these different nations, and I think that the Arabs also should be a part of it, but on the basis of what, what the things that we talked about here, like the seven mitzvot b'renoach. So how do we do it now, as just uh, what we have in front of us? How do we present these three options now? to the Arabs who live in I'll tell you what I, what I, what I suggested, okay? In my initial And uh, I kind of did it as a joke, but I, I was actually serious. There was, because um, it was like an educational joke, like a serious educational joke. Um, we, had, we have Arabs that come and build the houses there. For some people. Some people have only, use only Jewish labor, some people use Arab labor because it's cheaper and sometimes better, and depends. So there was an argument when the current hostilities broke out, whether we should continue to allow Palestinians to come in and build houses. And there were people who said no. Like, who knows, they might gather intelligence, who knows, they might come and attack us. Also, we don't want, we want to hurt them, we want to work, we want only Jewish labor here. So there was an argument in the issue. I knew already that which side would win out, that the side that would win out would be the side that would allow Palestinians to get in to build because it was just a tremendous difference economically, like uh, it was just, it's just much, much cheaper, and there weren't enough people, I already felt there weren't enough people that would be able to prevent, prevent, prevent the Palestinians from coming in. Uh, and people were in the process of building already as well. So what I suggested was, what we should do is we should go to the contractors, the Arab contractors, and say, look, we have this problem, like people, you know, don't trust you, don't want you to come in. What, what should happen is, we want only... Um, we would like you, you to come up before like our Din, anyone who you're bringing in, that we should know who that person is that's going to be coming and working, and he should declare that this, that not, well, I wouldn't call it the seven mitzvot b'nei noach, but he should declare that before Allah, that it's forbidden from the murder, that it's forbidden to steal, that it's forbidden to have the sexual immorality. All these things, and we would have a position already of 
uh, a, a, a contact and an opening of a moral dialogue between between us. We would know who he is. He would know who we are. We would respect him for that. He would respect us for that. And there would be a place of mutual respect on the basis of not only not only economics, but a moral basis. And I think that that is like a microcosm for, for, for what we're talking about. In other words, I think that in the end, we have to be able to differentiate. I think that the Palestinian society is not monolithic. I think there's good people, I think there's bad people. I think there's good chamurot, and I think there's bad chamurot. And we have to be able to differentiate. What we do instead is we do the exact opposite. We create Palestinian identity. We create Palestinian solidarity and anti-Israel sentiment. When, when people come and kidnap the three kids near Gush Etzion, what happened the next day? All of the villages were closed down. Why? What did Vadinis do? In Vadinis, they never did anything against the Jews. Ever. And if we just gave them the option, they would jump on it like, like that to become Israeli citizens. Like that. All of them. But what do we do? What do we say? No, no, no. You, you're Palestinians. The minute we close down their village and the other village and the other village, not like, like places like Beit Fajar, where there really are pieces of, there really are enemies there. Okay? But we don't know how to differentiate. We don't know how to differentiate between who can be a good guy and who is a bad guy. The bad guys, you have to fight. But you have to leave, according to Torah law, you have to leave an option open for people to come and join you. Do you think that maybe as a, as a, I'm just like, because I'm really serious, like, like as a group, yeah. maybe perhaps we can, I mean, you, you probably know, like, you know, the, the map. Palestinian map, you and you would probably know the map much better than, than, than I do or something like that, but I, I mean, like, I really think something needs to be done about this because, I mean, it's just, this just cannot continue, not just, not just for everybody's sake, but I'm saying in terms of, like, Am Yisrael's sake, I mean, we constantly have more and more widows, more and more families that are ripped apart, and something needs to be done to kind of do exactly what you proposed, and, um, so we have to be able to start to differentiate. We yeah, have to be I mean, able to start to differentiate between who, what things, what are our conditions. And I think that the condition of, um, you know, a, becoming an Israeli citizen, that's a possibility. Like, we could use that. We could use that. Um, I, I don't think that's exactly what the Torah demands, but I think that we could use that. But uh, people might abuse that. And that's the fear that people have. I think there has to be, like, a mo some kind of moral stance and a swearing ceremony and that, and it, where it has to be based on honor and respect, and something else that's very important, and that's fear. I was just going to ask. You. Fear is the most important thing, and I tell this to you know I have a friend in my shul. He says to me, "You don't get it. You don't get it. Like, you can't trust them because they'll swear to you that they'll they'll do, uphold this, and 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 they'll they'll do." And that's what happened with Muhammad in Medina with the Jews there. He slaughtered all of them after he made an oath. I said, "Yeah, you know why he did that? Because he could." So condition number one for me is that we have to be the strongest, no doubt, and we have to be so strong that there's no chance that anyone will ever be able to defeat us. That's number one. And after we've done that, which I think is the case, if we just realized it, that's what we are right now, and we were willing to act up on that, okay? And then, number two, then you can trust them because it's already now in their interest to be in a covenant with us. But we have to be honest about it. What happened to the Arabs that sold houses to Jews in Hebron? Where are they? What are their names? What Jews are protecting them? No Jews are protecting them. That is Chilul Hashem, and you're responsible for that. How can that be in your country that there are people who sold houses to Jews and they're being threatened with death and you're not protecting them? Because you're pathetic, you are a pathetic, uh, you're succumbing to petty politics, and you uh, you're so busy talking about your rights to land that you haven't realized that you have an obligation and a responsibility to make sure that there's justice and righteousness throughout the land. I saw that after the, the hostilities broke out in East Jerusalem, what did they start to say? I saw people putting up on Facebook, we have to make sure that there's law and order. Make sure there's law and order. Make sure there's law and order. No, don't make sure there's law and order. You don't have to make sure there's law and order. The Romans make sure there's law and order. You make sure there's justice and righteousness. And when you're talking the language of justice and righteousness, believe me, the Arabs understand that. And if they don't understand that, then you have something that you can revert to, and that's called revenge. Revenge doesn't mean going to Bagats and after a year uh, blowing up one room in a, in a house 
and uh, and while everyone's collected money to build the guy a new mansion, and they become heroes in this, in Palestinian society, where you've actually encouraged terrorism, revenge means something else. But you have to also be you have to they have to know that that's what you mean. And we have a Westernized mentality, a Romanized mentality, a formal formalized mentality that says law and order. Law and order. Let's put military bureaucrats that have the two-year tenure in charge of all of the territories. And what, is it, what does he want to do? He wants there in the two years that he's there to be as quiet as possible. Yeah. And so how do you make sure that there's quiet? You go to this mufti, you go to this, you go to this muhtar, say, buddy, look, I'll, I'll let you sell um, 25 M16s and you'll be able to make money for your family if you just make sure that no one causes any problems here in the village. You willing to do that? No, I'm a righteous man. I'm not going to do something like that. So then he goes to the guy who's not so righteous. Are you willing to do that? Yeah, I'm willing to do that. Can you also get? Can you also make sure I get permits to build a quarry over here? Okay, we'll we'll set that up for you. Don't worry. What have we done? We've actually caused the most corrupt elements of society to rise to the top. And that we're responsible for that because we don't do what we're supposed to do. Not law and order, justice and righteousness. And justice, yes, there's a heavy hand. And that has to be a part of the game. I'm in favor of coexistence. I'm in favor of peace. I'm in favor of coexistence and I'm in favor of peace. But not the coexistence and peace of the left. Because the coexistence and peace of the left is like a Christian morality of turn the other cheek, feel pity, let's buy them stuff, let's, you know. No, 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 no. Of respect. Let's sit down at the table and swear before he who created the world that you're my friend and I'll be your friend, and if something happens to you, I'll watch your back, and you're gonna watch my back. And now, let's shake. That is respect. Slaughter and slaughter That's the way things are done here, but you need people to be able to do that. Are there people on the Arab side that are willing to do that? Yes. Yes. We need Jews of honor. And, but there are Jews that are willing to do that, because we're too busy tying our ties. Can you, can you name specific factions in Israel, or specific figures in Israel who who you be feel feel comfortable? I mean, I, 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 a few come to mind, but I mean, what do you mean in the Muslim street? No, no, I'm saying in the Jewish street. In the Jewish world, it you has men to up. Me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it has to be. I think. No, but, no, but I'm saying like I mean like top figures, top like general factions. Like no, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Uh, and and why are we not there yet? Because we're colonists. Because our mentality isn't there. Like because we, because you know why? Because we're embarrassed to talk about Eshdi Fatwa. So we because we're embarrassed to talk about about these these ideas and these laws that have actual real truth in them because they sound nasty and disgusting. That what you're going to rape a woman in battle? Oh my God! Close the book quick and let's study. Let's talk about uh, about uh, meat and milk. Okay, that that won't cause us any problems. But raping a woman in battle? <clears throat> close the book. Okay, so I say. I say, look, we're not going to rape women in battle, okay? Most of the time. But no. <laughs> we're not going to rape women in battle, okay? But there's truth there that has to be learned. The ideas behind it have to be, don't worry, the Torah is, is very just. It already put a lot of conditions, so many conditions that it can't almost ever be. But you better know, you better go to battle thinking that you're going to take a Shekhi Torah. Because that's the mentality you have to have in order to succeed. In anywhere in the world. I right. think that it's, a, I think Russia, it's a universal idea of justice. Also most of America. I think it's a universal idea of justice. Yeah. Do you think that then one of the primary conditions then would be, like when you study war, you know how the, the, there's a theory that the only way you can impose peace unilaterally is, is through a catastrophic end of the conflict, right? So do you think that that's necessary here, or do you think that there might be another way to go forward? Because all I'm seeing, like I just traveled all over the place. I was just in Hebron for Shabbat, and I noticed... Uh, they, they really don't feel like they've lost anything. Like I, t I sat and talked to a shopkeeper, and he lectured me for about 45 minutes about how the Arabs won. And I was sitting there, and I was like, you call this winning? Like, uh, you know. Okay, because, because, the, be, we, because we have to understand what it means for them to lose. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't think we've understood what it means for them to lose. And I think one of the things we have to understand is that what we're fighting against, we're not fighting against people, we're, fight, we're fighting against an idea. An idea, and the idea is what, what we call in our tradition like the saw of the nation, the, the, like the angelic manifestation of the nation. 
and the symbol of the nation. That's the thing that we're fighting against. That's what we have to destroy. Like, we have to destroy the myth and the narrative, and there's several ways to do that. One of the ways is to really just destroy it, like, for, front, frontally. Another way is to take that myth and, or narrative and transform it. Okay, so I think we have to do both. I mean, I think that we have to do both, but you're absolutely right that without changing that, it doesn't matter if you give them Israeli citizenship, it doesn't matter if you, it doesn't matter what you do, you're not gonna, you're not gonna win. There has to be, and I don't think that it has to be, in a sense, they don't have to feel like they lost, but we have to feel like we won. The they can feel like they win. We, they we, feel like they we won. destroy their Tsar only if they feel like they won. The only way to destroy their Tsar, the only way to destroy that angelic force that's governing their narrative, so to speak, is to make them feel like they've won, make the individuals on the ground actually feel like winners with the results of the conflict. But they already, like, that's what, that's what I mean, like, after I talk to them. Well, he does. I don't know. Well, I think what we have to do is we have to redefine what winning means to them. Yeah. Like, right now, winning means for them that, that we lost, that the Jewish people lose. Yeah. Like, that's winning for them right now. I, but I, I think that we can connect to a deeper place within their psyche where winning means something else. That and that's that's what we have to build to try to we have to try to build to build. I think it's I think it's definitely possible. Like, I, that's I, actually our only option other than killing everybody. If we have to destroy and kill everyone, okay? Let's yeah. say the hypothetically. Yeah. Who's gonna do it? That's true. The Jews in like the in the yeah, yeshiva, like the, yeah. with the little tiny kippot and like uh, talking about meat and milk, or um, or who's gonna do it? There are people in the Jewish field do it, and I think that there are people on the Arab side that. And so what, what, I'm, what I'm talking about, I think, you know, we, we've talked about, like, creating a brit, like a, a, a pact with, with different chamurot, with different groups within the Arab, within the Arab, on the Arab side. They're the ones who say we have to destroy them. Yeah. And they say, you guys are so stupid that you destroy houses that is so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. What you should do is you should take the whole family of any terrorist and toss them out of the country. Yeah. That's what they would do. And the problem is that we can't do it. But they can. But I'll tell you something else. It's also uh, an educational tool because, because if I have them saying that they're going to do that, it teaches us what we should be able, we should be doing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but but like if it's Jews that say it, then you're just like uh, violent and uh, ridiculous and uh, yeah. you know and all this stuff and talking about Ashkenazi. There's, there's all the time about stooping to their What's level. What's that? There's all the time about stooping to their yes, level. Yes, we should be stooping to their level. We should be stooping to their level. It's certainly effective. No, no, it's, it's, well, it's no, no, no. The, the fact is, 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 is that if we say we shouldn't do it because that we'd be stooping to our level, that's sort of like a racist thing. To say. Not only that, it's accepting the Western paradigm as a superior paradigm and saying yeah. the paradigm of the Middle East, it's not their level, it's also the level of every one of our ancestors in the Tanakh. Meaning when we say we don't want to stoop to their level, we're talking about our level. Right. We're talking about the level of the right. Semitic people. No, we want, we want to be saying, Christians. We want to be good Christians. We want to be good Christians. There's only one country in the world that acts according to Christian morality, and that's the state of Israel. When it comes to war. When it comes yeah. to war. Yes. Yes. Okay. So ridiculous. And, 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 and there's a reason why no Christian country ever acted as a country according to Christian morality, because if a nation had ever turned its other cheek, what would happen to that nation? It would yeah. disappear. Yeah. Actually, the Tibetans tried that once. But... They tried that once. And <laughs> it didn't work out so well. But I have, like I was just saying, there's, there's a, a, a priest who came out and talked about the people of Israel. And this is what he says. Listen, he's, he was, he, he, and I have it right here on the phone. I just, I just sent it to you. He was talking about the fact that the Jews used to be so righteous and good when they were being slaughtered in the Holocaust. But ever since then, they've taken up arms and they start to fight. I, I should read you a quote, what he says. He says, power... Good or bad? Is Yitzhak good or bad? It can be good if it's used for good. That's, I mean, what I was going to ask is that we've been looking at the, the issue of raping a woman in battle from a very technical perspective, but if you, I'm, I'm not politically correct at the best of times, but if you were to play devil's advocate, is there not something to it um, which is like mediating the bloodlust? that you were talking about into actually something something positive, more positive yachasit, you know like yeah, I think that's exactly what it is that's exactly what the Gemara says mm -hmm. well, okay wait, hold on, it's doing that from the male perspective, but the female is still being raped, I don't yeah, know how she's like the female's not in battle though. that's the what? the female's not at, in battle though. yeah, she's just, she's just like 
there. Sina being raped. Like, <laughs> this is one thing I wanted to ask before. I'm glad that you brought it back to Asia. Like, I understand that, like, from the male, from the Jewish male's perspective, like, you're raising up something, you're, you're doing a, like, mm -hmm. it's a Yitzhara, but you're, like, doing a mitzvah, sort of, like, you're raising something. Yeah, but from the female's off. perspective, you're, she's just being raped. Like, yeah. she's being violated. And then asked to join the club. <laughs> like, and she doesn't have a choice because no one else wants her because she's been raped. Like, Not to mention that you just murdered her entire family. <laughs> and killed her god. And her and son. And said your daughters can come to her, they're virgins. You're saying that the okay. someone is hurt in this act. That's just hurt. You're saying it's a bit hurt? Stop, 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 stop. stop. Hold on, hold on. Let me explain myself. The, I, I understand that this is not an analogy because one is halakhically okay and one is not. But in terms of the feelings that are that are felt... Her, her feelings are... No, 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 no. In terms of the feelings that are felt, I think it's analogous to a man being raped. Now, I'm no. asking you, like, how do you feel about the idea of that? Like, no, in terms of the way that like someone would feel, in terms of the violation, in terms of the, the like, lack of power one has, like... I'm, try I'm trying to understand what you're saying. What I'm, what I'm asking is, I understand... Wait, what about, what about what about her husband who just chopped off his head? Yeah. What about him? But I'm not asking about him. I'm asking about her because she's gonna be the one that's gonna be alive. Yeah, and she's gonna be the one that's been violated and has to live with that, suffer like theoretically. Can we say that before the rape she was the enemy and a different and a different like metaphysical reality exists after the act? Like once she's already gone through this process, maybe. But if we she's have a different. Feel like she's just been yeah, raped. she probably still feels like you're an enemy. I'm not asking about the metaphysical. I'm saying, look, it might be a holy yeah, act from the man's perspective, wow. from the woman's perspective. She's just being raped. Yeah. I don't understand why you don't understand. Well, I think she would be more. I think she'd be more focused on the options before her at this point. Right, a man. And, and the truth is, I want to say something. I want to say something. I don't feel like he understands what it is for a I think there are like twelve other circumstances that are also happening. Wait, hold on. If someone was to come to me, okay, in the middle of battle, and we just let's say conquered Syria, up to the Euphrates River, okay, and we just. Captured women in battle, and someone's come to say to me and say, "Hey, should I do Eshedifatua?" I would say to him, "No, okay, for the reasons you said." But that doesn't change, okay, the message and the idea that's being that's, that that the Torah is trying to teach us in, in this possibility. Like if it the Torah is teaching us is teaching us a lesson, okay? It's teaching us a lesson. Uh, and it's a deep lesson, and I think it's something that we have to internalize and understand and not be afraid of. And that doesn't mean that an individual act of violating a woman is permissible. Okay? But theoretically, but theoretically the, the possibility, of like, like the destruction of Amalek, the idea of genocide. We have a mitzvah to commit genocide. People don't like to talk about that, but we have a mitzvah to commit genocide under certain circumstances. Today, do we know who Amalek is? No. But it's good for us to know that theoretically, we, the catastrophic idea that Ryan was talking about of destroying an entire city or wiping people out to the last of them, that possibility exists. We've done it. It's happened. And it's important for us to understand that possibility in order us to be, for us to be who we're supposed to be. So, Not to do it, but to understand that that is one of the possibilities, one of the moral possibilities under certain circumstances and that that is the just thing to do, the right thing to do. Not that we're going to do it. Okay. Okay. And I would say the same thing about that. And 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 the and the problem that we're looking at it from the perspective of, of uh, of wait, it's categorically wrong all the time to to rape. Okay. That is something that prevents us from understanding a different idea of truth. But you just said it, it is categorically wrong. I didn't say it's But if it wrong. happens, then this is the way. To do I didn't it. say it's categorically wrong. You're saying it's categorically wrong. No, you just said it. No. You just said mm -hmm. I didn't say it's you shouldn't do it, but if it does happen... I said, if sure. someone comes to me and asks me, is it permitted or forbidden from me, and a certain circumstance, I said, no, it's forbidden to you. So just the very sign of asking shows that you're not ready to do it. So it is wrong. He shouldn't have asked. It's wrong to ask. It's actually is wrong. No, it's a sign that you're not ready to. There are certain circumstances, there are certain circumstances under which it is the right thing to do. The right thing to do, or like there are certain circumstances thing. under which it is the right thing to do because the, the alternative, the alternative is worse. What's the alternative? The alternative is that the man will go like that. That the soldiers, for example, will go out and rape a hundred women, like we Why see in the what's happening no, in Europe. No, but that's still that's just, not, no, no. But that means that in both circumstances, rape is wrong, but one is a better rape than the other. Also, like you're wrong. saying, why are your soldiers doing that? 
That's exactly what I'm saying. But that, that's exactly the point I'm trying to make. Wait, listen, listen. This is very important. The, the idea that there's a that it's categorically wrong all the time to rape under any circumstances, that's foreign to our thought process. Same thing with... There's nothing in all of the world that is all the time forbidden. Looking at it from an outsider's perspective is that the whole point is that when you look at something through your lens, your cultural lens, you're, you're looking at this right now as a very European, like, oh, you said rape, and as soon as you hear the word rape, everybody freaks out, right? Yeah. But in the ancient times, like you said something about soldiers, like you're like, whoa, your soldiers rape? That was pretty much a fact of life back then. That's not... Yeah. Yeah, but no, it wasn't like that. Was that it should still be a fact of life right now? No, but I mean, not that it should happen, but, but, but it should be a fact of life. But I think the whole point of having this conversation is that we all know that people do like really horrible shit in the heat of battle. Like that's kind of just that's an accepted thing. And even if you have very disciplined troops, even very very disciplined armies, you'll always find instances where people do horrible things. So I think the whole idea of this, I don't, maybe I'm wrong, is that they're trying to mitigate that by saying, okay, we don't want you to do this like wholesale or anything like that. Here's but the process. Right. But there's another thing. I think issues like this should probably uh, primarily be discussed by Talmudic Chachamim who've actually been in war. I think war one of the ways that you frighten your enemy is by telling them that you're going to rape his women. Mm -hmm. And when you tell him you're going to rape his women, you better believe me that he's going to be, a, he's going to be that, that touches a nerve. Okay? And it should touch a nerve. Right? Because his job is to protect the women. And also, it affects the women because the women are the ones who press the men to, into battle. Like in the story of the Maccabees, uh, it was women who pushed the men into battle. Yeah. Without, and today, by the way, also, if we ever go to battle, it's because the women are going to push us to battle. If the women don't push to battle, we don't go into battle. And so that talk is like, that's the talk of war. Now, I'll also say this. I had one time, someone was asking me about, like, it was after, uh, I don't remember, one of the operations or something that we did, I think it was like in Gaza or something, like some group or something came and talked to me, and, I'm like, and I said, and they said, did, were there war crimes and stuff like that? Did, did people shoot when they shouldn't have shot? And you know what I said to them? I said, I want to tell you something. When I go into battle, okay, who do I want next to me? I want the guy, what, what am I going to war for? It's because everything else failed, and now the point of war is for me to be a gorilla, and to stand up on that hill and go as loud as I can so that the other gorilla runs away as fast as he can. And I'm going to do anything it takes to make him run away. And that's the point of battle. And that's how you win. And that's how wars end. Unless you have the United Nations who, who like stipulates to do, you know, like want the gorilla to stand over here and this gorilla will stand over here and then we'll put another like pink gorilla in the middle and we'll all over and play with each other. And then you have a 150 year war. Okay? And that's much more moral because then you have like everyone with, with yeah. post-traumatic stress disorder and growing up uh, for like, for, you know, three generations. That's much more. That, but that's, that's wonderful. So I said, who do I want to have next to me in battle? I want to have the guy, I'm not going to have the guy who's, who's going to ask questions. I want the guy who's, got, who, who's, who's quick on the trigger. And if he thinks that there's some danger there, even if he makes a mistake, I want him to shoot. Because if he doesn't shoot that guy, I'm going to get shot at. And my kids are going to not have a father. I want the guy next to me who's going to be with a heavy hand on the trigger. And is going to shoot at whatever. And that's war. <coughs> and that is war. You better scare the shit out of your enemy as fast as you can. And get his women running. And get everyone running. And also, by the way, say, if you guys want to, you know, end this, here's the way to do it.